Hello, and welcome to something that I never would have dreamed possible even just one year ago. This is Exit the Stage Door, and I am Aaron Teachman, your host, and this is Season 2. Welcome. Let's get started. We're going to start this season off with a bang, and it's uh, it's Annalisa Diaz. She is one of the several members of uh, Welders 2.0 that I hope to talk to. She's also the founder of the DC Coalition for Theater and Social Justice. She's an incredible generative theater artist who does basically everything that is possible for someone to do in theater. She was incredibly gracious with her time, uh, her professional time, as I visited her in her office. And um, we got to talking about... Uh, theater about and, and about what you can do with it about what it can mean and, and and what kind of change it can affect in the world and and how you get to the point where you can be that person doing that thing it's super exciting guys we're back we're back I'm so excited thank you so much to everybody who was constantly asking me so when are you gonna release a new podcast the answer is now today what day is it? Whatever. Today, it's happening now. And yeah, Exit the Stage Door, Season 2. It's Annalisa Diaz. Great. Yep, that's right. Okay. Yay! <laughs> yeah, so um, that means we've started. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the first couple of times I set this... I'm, g- I'm going to take them off. <laughs> First couple of times that I set up the equipment, I did it without, um, I don't know, what's the best way to put this? Um, without respecting the human interaction element. Right. And they, the, they were like just in line with. In front of people's faces. Right there, just <laughs> right at the eye line. So I was like yeah. peeking over the pop filter at right. Liz May Street. Uh, so I, oh, I love her. She's great. Uh, I'd love to have uh, have her on again. Um, but that she, we got to do that on the Landsberg Theater stage, oh. which is apparently where she saw her first play. No way! <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. That's so great. So we, I was just gonna do it in the green room, but when she mentioned that, I was like, well, then why not on stage? There's <laughs> nothing on stage right now, so let's do it. Oh, cool! It was awesome. Yeah, but I've 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 learned to use angles better, and I also bought way smaller <laughs> microphone stands <laughs> it's a lot easier to see people now and that that improves the yeah the presentness of it yeah there's one interview i did when i was in south africa where i like went to a radio station to do this interview and they had the whole like giant microphone stands where you like couldn't even see the person you were talking to because they were <laughs> Oh, they were not only sitting across the table, but they had these like giant setups of microphones that were hanging in your front of your face. Oh my gosh. It was crazy. Yeah. No, sorry, minor adjustments. And I have to, I'll, I'll keep moving this ball to make sure it does, the computer doesn't go to sleep. Oh, yeah. So we get it all. Good call. Yeah. Um, there's a, yeah, you, you do a, a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, uh, but the, fir- the, re- the reason I reached out to you specifically was because of um, Catherine Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was really bummed that I couldn't make it out to Redline during those uh, open dramaturgy office hour uh-huh. things. Those sound really fun. W- did, did people... Well, it's funny because the one day that I was scheduled to do the open dramaturgy project with her was there was some kind of mix-up, I think. So we didn't end up doing an in-person open dramaturgy oh, okay. for my particular session. I know I know that she ran that program in person with several other dramaturgs in the mm. area, but the day that we did it, we actually did it online. So we did it via oh, Twitter. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, which is a whole other arena of <laughs> open dramaturgy. Um, it was interesting because we then were able to to interact with people from all across the country, not just you know, the random people that came into the right, bar. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was cool. And the, the, I know that they run into, like, a couple times, because they, they do, they always maintain sort of a running pattern on Twitter, but even when they're meeting people in person, and that kind of split focus can be really hard to, <laughs> to manage. Oh, yeah. I, 
I often don't know how to do it. <laughs> I'm terrible at Twitter, and I've learned from Kat. Yeah. <laughs> She's very good at it. Yes, yes. Um, but I'm slowly learning how to utilize that network because it's, it is enormous once you sort of get a handle for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was terrible. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting tool because I've made connections with people on Twitter that I would never have oh, m- yeah. made otherwise. What the degree of those connections are, debatable, but I mean, I, I, at any given moment, I'm talking to people in Seattle or in San Francisco or in some cases in the UK when I, you know, wouldn't otherwise be right, talking yeah, to exactly. them. It's, it's kind of amazing. And that's actually one of the reasons I started the podcast because of the conversations that I was seeing on Twitter. Yeah. I'm just thinking it would be awesome if we could have those uh, conversations in, in real life as well. Because, you know, obviously the 140 character thing, there, there are some heavy hitting things that are happening in the world right. of theater and right. the concept of, like, how do you organize a theater, theater and social justice, oh, yeah. and theater's role, like, during Black Lives Matter. And, and it's going to be a huge running um, issue for the theater community in Baltimore in particular this mm-hmm. entire year. It's going to be all about that right. <laughs> in particular during the trial so um sometimes you can't do that on twitter yeah it's limited <laughs> it's definitely limited yeah um so it, your career what, explain yourself yeah, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> and go it's all uh, uh it's uh careers always fascinate me because mine is so completely accidental um yeah and and how things, how you end up where you are, and what you what you want to be doing, and how you get there. Mm-hmm. I always, I don't know that there's any lesson in it for me at this point. I don't do it. I, I used to do it because like, oh, how did they do that? But now it's more just more like I, the stories are so interesting. So yeah, and you have a lot of bizarre <laughs> career paths. <laughs> yeah. It's not. I don't know if I would even call it a path. It's just <laughs> sort of like everything and anything at any given moment. Um. Yeah. Funny, I don't even know where to start this. Um, I guess a starting place (laughs) um, would be after I graduated from my undergraduate work at Boston University, Mm -hmm. I took a year and moved to Los Angeles, and I was actually doing a year of service where I was teaching special ed. Oh, okay. Um, Right? (laughs) How does this lead to theater? But one of the things that I was able to do during that year in L.A. was teach an after-school program. I started an after-school program for students who wanted to do theater. Mm -hmm. Um, And the whole time I had been interested in theater, and it was something that I always did. I did a minor in theater Mm -hmm. when I was in undergrad. Um, But I never really believed that I could do theater as a career. It was just sort of something that I thought... I would do my entire life by any means, but I never really believed that it was a viable career path. Um, Sometimes I still don't. (laughs) Um, But so during that year, I was also applying to graduate programs. And at the time, I had thought that I was going to be doing a PhD program in English literature focusing on dramatic literature. Oh, okay. But I only wanted to go to the top programs in the country. So I was like, I have to set myself apart. How do you do that? Okay, I need a master's degree. Okay, but I don't want a master's degree in English because then I'm not really setting myself apart. I need a degree in something else, but that is targeted to dramatic literature. So then I started researching programs that were research and writing based. Mm -hmm. So more academic focused and not necessarily MFA programs Um, and Catholic University actually has a freestanding master's program in what's technically called theater history and criticism they'll tell you it's a dramaturgy program and it is it is in many ways Um, but the, the actual title that's on my diploma is a master's degree in theater history and criticism which should I still down the line go and apply to a PhD in English, 
theater history and criticism sounds a lot more academic than right. an MFA in dramaturgy. Right, right. Um, so that was sort of the reasoning that got me to the master's degree that I have now. Um, but it was through the program at CUA that I discovered that dramaturgy was a field. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that um, dramaturgs can be working artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I started doing practical work in the DC theater community at the impetus of the program, mm-hmm. um, I kind of discovered that, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. There's a whole theater community in the DC Baltimore area and people can make jobs and livings <laughs> doing these things. Um, and so really only in the last five years have I given it a chance. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because my training is in so many different areas, I started as a performer as most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got this pretty rigorous academic degree in research. Um, and another aspect of, the, well, this isn't really an aspect of the program, but during the time that I was doing the program, um, I also sort of did my own study and practical work in theater and social justice, mm-hmm. um, which is different than dramaturgy, but <laughs> it was it happened all at the same time. So people sort of were like, did you learn that at CUA? Or how did that work? Um, it was not part of the program. Um, but so I think since my training backgrounds are so various, Mm -hmm. it's allowed me to wear a ton of different hats. Um, and so I've been able to take a lot of jobs, professional jobs, um, in a lot of different arenas, whether it's as a playwright or a director or, um, a workshop facilitator Mm -hmm. for theater and Mm -hmm. social justice or a performer. I mean, it's or a dramaturg. I've done that also. <laughs> um, it just really kind of spans yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, th- I definitely have often felt that in my own, um, with my own eclectic career background. Yeah. Because I, um, it's so funny that theater history and criticism to me, like, because I have a master's degree in Germanic studies, uh-huh. um, screams dramaturg to me. Like it's yeah, just, right? was, and, and criticism and literary theory was part of my focus there. I was particularly interested in like the development of irony and, <laughs> and how the German romantic poets were used by post-structuralists yeah, to right sort on. of make their own points. So that kind of background I, it makes it really interesting to, participating theater that and I was also I I actually wanted to be in film Mm. so and then I stumbled into a job in theater because I was like well at least it's in theater it's creative sort of but Mm -hmm. then I that that job was turning wrenches as you know as an electrician so right that's less creative than I thought it would be um Mm -hmm. and have been sort of widening my experience in theater ever since but I, I think there's a lot to be said about the necessity of critical thinking and, mm-hmm. and research methods for approaching a play or any work or any dramatic work. I had to play is too restrictive. Yeah. Um, because if you, if you, especially if you want to affect change, mm-hmm. it's really important to dig into the guts of it, to understand structure, not just on an intuitive level, but on a literal level right. so that you can turn the structure into an effective rhetorical device. Yeah. Um, so yes, I, 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 Love, I love that story that you're telling about your <laughs> career. Um, I, the podcast has sort of become an unofficial like dramaturgy like yeah. supporters club because I, I I've interviewed a bunch, Catherine obviously, and um, uh, now their names are escaping me, and that's just rude of me because they were all great people. Um, okay, and I've I've wanted to talk to a bunch more. Um, I will circle back on on one of that one of the thoughts really quickly um but because you mentioned earlier south africa oh yeah so and there's one other place malawi there, taught yeah. in malawi yeah yeah so yeah. how did that how did that adventure begin before we come back to yeah sure in the dc area um well this is i guess is sort of the story of like my path into theater and social justice which i think my entire life i had 
wanted to do some kind of work in theater and social justice. And what I mean by that is I, w- I was looking for a way to do, to have an arts practice mm-hmm. that was community focused and it was more than just arts in a vacuum. Right. It was something that, you know, made an impact in the world. And I, <laughs> this is my own psychological issues, but <laughs> both of my parents are in the medical profession. So I was sort of expected to do oh, that as yeah. well. Okay. Um, and so I think I was always looking for a way of like, how are you helping? How are you helping people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and and like a way of aligning my passion for the arts to that purpose. But I was also very wary of, you know, systems of oppression right. and mm-hmm. racism and the whole like white savior or Western oh, yeah. savior mentality that a lot of people have especially in international economic development. Um, So I stayed away from, like, most of my life, any of the programs that were like, go to Africa and teach theater for a couple of months or, like, you know, teach English or whatever those programs are just because I was so wary of the structures that were supporting those programs and and the structures that those programs perpetuate. Yeah. Mm Yeah. but it was sort of always in the back of my mind that, like, how, how do you do that? How do you make the arts um, available to serve a community without telling the community how to fix the problems that you are perceiving? Um, so what ended up happening is that uh, once I got to D.C., I had had a friend from college from undergraduate work who had, she had entered the Peace Corps. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, And she was serving in Malawi. And after her first year of service there, she had been placed at a health clinic and her counterparts, her Malawian counterparts at the health clinic, of their own accord, started a drama group to address some of the systemic issues in Malawi surrounding HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a huge stigma in Malawi against getting tested for HIV and AIDS because people see it as a death sentence. And then because the communities there are subsistence level farming, you really rely on the community for support for, I mean, in many cases for survival. Um, So if you are found or if it's determined that that you are HIV positive, you in many ways are excommunicated, mm. for lack of a better word, right. from the community. And it's essentially a death sentence. Not not because the disease isn't treatable or is, isn't... Uh, what's the word? Um, not that it's... It's not curable, right? But... Right, but there you are, there are now Right, yeah. there are ways to manage the, the yeah. d- disease now. Um, and people in Malawi know that, but still those community members can be ex- shunned from the community. Absolutely, yeah. um, so people just won't get tested. And then we all know that that <laughs> creates bigger problems yep. um, with transmission. So this, my friend's counterparts in Malawi had decided that they would start a drama group at, run out of the health clinic in order to address stigma and to, mm-hmm. to cr- essentially create spaces for dialogue about why people aren't getting tested, why we need to be getting tested, and how we can do better at not viewing anyone who's HIV positive as a dead person. Um, And so one of their concerns was that they didn't really know what they were doing (laughs) as far as theater. (laughs) Um, So my friend Jenna, then called me and I had been planning to visit her in Malawi just to visit her. Um, and she said, Hey, when you're here, this is what's going on. Would you want to do a workshop with these people? They want one. Would Mm -hmm. you, would you want to lead that? Um, so I said yes to that. And I felt ethically, uh, better about that kind of a situation where it's somebody asking for training rather than me saying, let me come to you with all of my Western knowledge, (laughs) you know, and impart the solutions to your problems that, by the way, we've created. (laughs) Um, So 
I felt a little ethically better about that mm-hmm. structure. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then was able to get training in theater of the oppressed from the folks at um, TONYC, which is theater of the oppressed New York City. Oh, okay. Um, and then went and led a week-long theater of the oppressed workshop in Malawi. Um, and the South Africa piece is that uh, I flew into South Africa and through another set of crazy circumstances, I had friends in South Africa, um, so I stayed with them in Johannesburg and also did a little bit of Theater of the Oppressed workshops um, during the few days that I was in Mm -hmm. Johannesburg. Um, And that was actually through a Catholic artist retreat weekend that I helped coordinate, and we integrated a Theater of the Oppressed work for some Catholic artists in Johannesburg. Wow, awesome. Um, So that was pretty cool. but it just was like this weird aligning of stars mm-hmm. that whole summer where I was able to fly into Johannesburg and do some theater of the oppressed work there and then go up to Malawi and continue doing that work um, with that community. So that's the story of the summer of 2013. That's <laughs> pretty epic. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's that's... <laughs> really really awesome um <laughs> and just just one of those like a, another example of how unpredictable and unplannable some of the adventures that you have in theater are like it's, yeah. not, it's not a stable career path for most people at all yeah and when you start to when you start to piece together your your work and you become open and you you, you make yourself open to the possibilities that instead of focusing on one path and right and you can be surprised by the entire universe all at once <laughs> yeah i mean it's something that i think you have to like put out there sure right yeah, like absolutely. my friend jenna knew that i was interested in theater and social justice so if i hadn't made that clear to the people that were close to me that whole trip never would have happened right right i mean it just wouldn't have happened yeah, yeah. and so it's something like right now i'm talking with friends of mine who i who are in the foreign service mm-hmm. in India, which is where my dad is from. Um, and we, we've we been trying to sort of get uh, off the ground some theater of the oppressed work in uh, in India. Um, there's, there's tons of things already happening in India, sure. but um, I happen to know, and it's right, like happen to know some people from college <laughs> who ended up working in the foreign service and I met with them and talked to them about what I did in Malawi. And they were like, well, I bet we could organize something in Bombay um, with women in Bombay. Oh, interesting. So we've been talking a lot about that, but just nothing has materialized. Mm-hmm. But it's, I'm fully confident mm-hmm. that it will. I just don't know when or right. how. But it's, you know, like being open to having those conversations yeah. and, and being patient you know and not like forcing things to happen right right? absolutely Um, it's one of the things that well uh one of the sort of might even call it a strategic error i made um (laughs) we'll call it a tactical (laughs) um by working just thinking that being in theater was enough Mm. to get opportunities to do the things in theater that I really wanted to do. Yeah. And I landed in lighting and in being a a board operator Uh um, is exactly the wrong place to be in theater and want to do anything else. Oh, interesting. Because, uh, like, so even as a lighting designer, the time that people who have day jobs and who are, you know, who are creating art, in uh, outside of some of the regular structures need to rehearse usually in the evenings or the weekends which is exactly when I'm working so I can't participate in the in with those people who are like learning how to make art themselves I couldn't join them so I don't have a portfolio to say I can say I'm a lighting designer but I can't give you photos and I haven't actually done it because I was structurally incapable of doing it because my day job wasn't a day job it was interfering with it so oh interesting that's um when i got frustrated enough with that situation i moved to new york briefly to try to be a director and that that was definitely a tech layer (laughs) but it's the kind of failure that you 
you learn from, you know, you, oh, yeah. you live with because that failure, failure is necessary in order to grow in that sense. Oh, so. I tell my students that yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and I failed, uh, but I did something about it too, um, which taught me the, the, the better way to approach it the yeah. next time. So after I repaired my finances <laughs> three <laughs> years later um, and, and moved to D.C., I moved to D.C. specifically because of the theater community, that because of the, the growing... Yeah. Um, I, emerging, like, I, I wanted to say young, but that's not totally right. It's just that, but there's a, a bubbling yeah. bounty of, of theatrical work happening, not just at the major theaters, but at all kinds of other levels. Yeah. So, um, my aunt and uncle and my grandmother live in Elk City, which is why I live with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I moved here. And then when I felt like I was financially stable enough to do it, I went freelance. And now that I can do things like have a podcast and <laughs> meet other people who are also doing fantastic theater things. Yeah, right on. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, one of the interesting uh, theater things that is happening in D.C., speaking of which, <laughs> yes. is The Welders. <laughs> I am also involved with them. <laughs> <laughs> and you are, which is, I, I, The Welders as a, I've, I've interviewed it. I hate calling them interviews. So that's an accident. I <laughs> I've had conversations with Jojo Roof and with um, yeah, and, awesome. Uh, and explaining this idea is so fascinating. It's a playwriting collective, but yep. that it's a designed to create uh, the shell of an organization that allows the artists themselves to rotate in and out. Right. But they, but they do so with a plan. You're because so I, I should say you're part of Welders 2.0. Correct. So you're the you're the <laughs> second generation. Yes. Um, and your class is much larger than. Uh, there's two more of us. Oh, is so it? there's seven oh, generative okay. artists okay. in our group, um, plus a creative producer. Mm-hmm. And in the first group, there were five generative artists right. and an executive and creative director. Right. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking of the photo that includes both. Oh yeah. <laughs> All 14 of us. Yeah. <laughs> that, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. And but that's that's so and that's it. They, there's so much they're doing right in terms of like organization building because they're taking their time. They're uh, uh, there's public meetings about it, and which I can't go to because I live in Elkin City. <laughs> but uh, was that pro- how did you get together with your group to because the application had to be done in a by group a, by a yeah. cohesive group, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> funny <laughs> stories all around. I love it. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, and it's like a healthy dose of skepticism. I guess I live my life with a dose of skepticism or something because I actually was really not initially won over by the idea of the welders. I just didn't, I didn't know what it was mm-hmm. and I didn't know if I really wanted to commit to when we did the application, it was essentially five more years mm-hmm. living in DC. And I had just lived here for the past four years to do this master's program. So I felt myself kind of at a juncture where it was like, do I stay in DC or is now my opportunity to escape? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just really wasn't sure if I was at the point in my life where I wanted to commit myself to another f- five years living in the mm. city with people well, at the time, I didn't have a group, so I was like, who would I ever want to commit myself to for five years? Um, but I went to one of their information sessions just to kind of, like, see <laughs> what the deal was. Um, and Steve Spotswood was at that information session, and... Funny enough, he actually was a professor of mine at Catholic University um, because the head of our playwriting program was out, I think on sabbatical or for Mm -hmm. some reason he was not teaching. Mm -hmm. And so they had hired Steve to teach some of the playwriting classes. So he taught a class on adaptation, which as a dramaturg, I was eligible to take. Mm -hmm. Um, So he taught... I had him as a professor at CUA, so I knew him from that, and then saw him at this welders meeting, and he, like, kind of cornered me in the elevator on the way out of the meeting, and he's like, are you really, are you, are you going to do this? Is this a thing that you're actually going to consider doing? And we both kind of looked at each other, and we're like, well, 
if you do it, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and I think Steve had a little more, um, he, I think he had put a little more commitment into his thought process <laughs> than I had. Cause he had, he actually kind of like had a list of people that he was like, mm, here yeah. are the ones that I want to ask. Yeah. Um, but the, we then kind of had a meeting. He, he and I did, um, like a week or two later, we were joking that it was like the fantasy draft of the DC theater people. That's awesome. <laughs> That's like kind of terrible. Awesome. Where we, we just like made a list of all the people that we would really want to work with, or at least consider working with for the next five years. Right. And then we kind of split it up and said, you go ask these people, you go ask these people and see what the tone of the conversation is and see how open people might be. Um, and then as we sort of started wrangling people that we invited them like is there who else would you want to work with or who do you think would be a good fit in this group and it just sort of started expanding from there um so it was a really i know organic is like a cliche word to use but it was kind of a organic growth of the group that we had mm-hmm. um there are a few people in the group that i didn't know before we formed the group but now I talk to them literally every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've cemented the group pretty well. That's awesome. Yeah. Is there, is, um, is there an animating principle? Like what, what, as a collective, what is your vision, I guess, of what? You mean 2.0 or 1.0 2.0, or both? Yeah. Well, I mean, your understanding of 1.0 is also interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, so the organization, right, is meant to create a structure that gives artists back the power right. to make decisions. Because particularly for playwrights in the American theater system, you write this thing and you give your heart to it, and you put your heart on a page, and then you essentially have to beg for permission to do it mm-hmm. anywhere. Like, you'll... NNPN and the New Play Exchange are great because, right, they they allow for much more freedom of communication about the work that's being done. But prior to those structures, the only way a playwright had to get a play produced was to, like, essentially go knock on the doors of the artistic directors Mm -hmm. and say, will you please produce this? So it it was a less than powerful um, position for a playwright to start a process. Um, and so the idea was, as I understand it from 1.0, well, we're going to take that power back and we're just going to create our own organization and we're going to support each other over the next five years um, uh, and produce our own work. And we're going to have the authority for every decision. So for 1.0, and this structure will remain the same for 2.0, for each generative artist, they are the artistic director of the organization during the time that we're producing their work. Mm-hmm. So they have all the decision-making power, which is both exciting and terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the biggest difference between the 1.0 and 2.0 groups is that um, the original welders were all pretty traditional playwrights. Mm-hmm. Some of them, are working on processes, and particularly Renee and Gwydion, who we'll see do their work this year, um, their processes are a little bit less traditional than their work has been in the past. But for the most part, the original welders see themselves and talk about themselves as traditional style playwrights. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is they sit down in a room by themselves and write a play and then hand it over to a producing a production team, yeah. and then the production team puts on the play. Right. In the 2.0 group, we have a designer who we're mm-hmm. conceptualizing as a generative artist. We have several, I, well, I consider myself several different things, um, but Rachel Hines is a devising artist primarily, um, which means she, when she creates work, she's not writing a play by herself and handing it over. She's really working collaboratively mm-hmm. um, with several artists to create a piece. Um, and then Hannah Hessel is a dramaturg primarily. 
So what does it mean for a dramaturg to be a generative artist? Mm -hmm. um, and then one of, the, one of my modes of being in the theater is as a director. So I'm interested in what does it mean to start a process from a director's standpoint? How can a director be a generative artist mm -hmm. and not just someone who, you know, like orchestrates or who, who finesses? Um, like, what does it mean for a director to have a generative voice in a room? Mm -hmm. um, so I think those are the kinds of questions that we're interested in asking in 2.0 is like, what, what are the sites of authority in a room? Oh, yeah. Um, what does it mean for different people to have authority in a room? Um, and what does it mean for the American playwriting and theater production process? How can we challenge that? Right. I think those are the big questions that we're yeah. asking. Well, and uh, it's I, I love that. I love that you're getting to, with the director, like insights of authority, because one of the things that you see, I, I've only worked for uh, large members of lore oh yeah so right the alley theater in houston actress theater of louisville shakespeare theater company yeah I've, right now on. i've worked at like arena and uh -huh. center stage i it so is director is god <laughs> yeah and it, which is really fascinating because <laughs> i well okay so my personal theory what i like to call it they all participate in the cult of creativity huh, interesting where Creativity is a mystic enterprise mm -hmm. that is inscrutable huh. to the donors and to the people who run it. And uh. so they can't ask questions or change the process of the director because they don't have access to the creative font that that director has. Interesting. Because of what they see in them happen on the stage. And this is how you tolerate really bad behavior from a director huh. who's given that authority because, oh, I can't get rid of him. He's too good right. kind of thing. Interesting. And that's enormously frustrating because yeah. obviously it strongly resembles the auteur theory in filmmaking. And filmmaking, of course, is also a collaborative enterprise mm -hmm. where the collaborators do not get enough credit for the kinds of things that are happening in the room. Right. So, and traditional theater in that sense is very conservative. Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, an my God. Idea. Yeah. And those, those institutions are so deeply steeped into it like it, it might be something they can't even see institutionally yeah. they which is one of the really frustrating things about working inside of them it's like why are you doing that? right <laughs> because we always do and and the, the, you see this also in the relationship with the artistic director mm -hmm. being like the uber god <laughs> right because when they're directing their own play there's literally no one in the organization who can tell them no mm -hmm. and they and it just it becomes such a nightmare for for governance like how do you how are you the production manager whose responsibility it is to maintain a budget if the person who sets your budget is telling you that they want to go over budget by right. whatever by whatever amount right but so you're undermining the authority of everybody around you yeah. because of your creative vision which is only steeped in this idea that you're the only one who can do it or it has to be done that way because you have the idea and it's a good one right. that's fine but like cost benefit analysis goes completely out the window mm -hmm. Even creatively, I'm not even not even just like numbers. Just like, <laughs> is this idea worth pursuing? Right. Well, a stage manager would be like, well, could give you five things right off the top of their head about why that idea with the donkey isn't a good one <laughs> and why it's just not going to happen. Right. But if it's the artistic director, you have to at least entertain the notion and put some logistical things in motion that are kind of ridiculous. Right. For an idea that dies. Like, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's because... It, and it's so interesting, too, because the way you brought up the director, it, I don't think the director often gets enough credit as a generative artist because mm -hmm. their work is seen as interpretation. Right. But that means, and for for some people, interpretation is not a generative act. Right. But, exactly as, right. but in literary theory and mm -hmm. criticism, interpretation very clearly is. Oh, absolutely. And a generative act. And, like, the German romantics <laughs> famously wanted every act of criticism to also be an act of art. So mm -hmm. art itself was was criticism, and then, so that's how you get guys like Lessing, mm -hmm. who is both a dramaturg and a playwright, and right. doing that kind of thing. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. That's, so that's that's extremely cool. I'm very much looking forward to what, what's going to happen with that, with you guys. I'm excited about it. I really am. Um, 
I think that we'll see a lot more um, like openness mm -hmm. to community and openness to people being involved in our process. And hopefully we'll see a lot more self-criticism, mm. which is not to say that Welders 1.0 aren't doing these things, but I think that we're starting from a place of knowing that that's what we're right. really interested in. Right. Um, because at least for the devising artists of us, um, we're talking about things like, well, what if we start our process in the fall of 2016 for a, a play that's not going to go up until 2018? Right, yeah. What does that mean for that ensemble? How do we credit them? What's the methodology? Um, because I've been invited into devising processes for other shows where, you know, I was invited into this room to do a thing, to create a piece of art, but I was invited as a community member. And then put my ideas and put my creativity into that process and then the play went on to be produced later and sure I think my name was like listed as someone who was in the room at some point but I was never really invited mm. back at a later point in the process to continue or or Maybe I was led to feel like I had more ownership over the work than they had in, they had expected. Um, so, and I, I think that there are several other of Welders 2.0 who have had similar experiences. So we're really trying to be cognizant of how we're inviting people to be involved in our process and being clear about what our expectations are and what. Mm we can offer if people take right. us up on our invitation. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of big questions. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I find the whole uh, regional theater movement to be really interesting. Mm. Just in general, I mean, I, I, I haven't taken a course on it or anything, so I don't know, like, the dedicated details of everybody, like how what, the Guthrie and La Jolla or whatever are. Yeah. But the... It is really young. Often, oh, yeah. Relatively speaking. Like, the oldest ones were formed in the 40s. Uh, no, I think there are se several that are a little older. But, like, for example, I'll just go to the, the founding myth of, of the alley. Right, Nine of Ants in 1947 sent out a bunch of postcards asking people to s supply 10 cents if they wanted to have a theater yeah. in town. Um, and they're on their second artistic director. Huh. Shakespeare Theater Company is still on its first, and they weren't actually founded until the mid-90s. Right. And yet, there is this aura of inevitability about them as if they have always been there. Mm -hmm. But they were disrupt hugely disruptive when they when they started. Oh, right. I don't know that whole story. I know par parts of it, yeah. but that had something to do with... It was a branch off of the Folger. Oh, yeah. I mean, or, it's so interesting. And then the Folger wasn't producing for a couple of years because STC had become a thing. And then someone at the Folger was like, we should really be producing theater at this library. And they brought back yeah. production there. And now we have two large regional Shakespeare <laughs> theater companies in the same city. It's, <laughs> I mean, I, and... That's that's the, the one of the things about the theater community in DC that I really love is has been this sort of questioning of I actually I I actually master electrician at the folder too so I it, the history of that is super interesting I'll get back to that in a second but I I love the idea of questioning the structures that you find yourself confronted with I think that's yeah. really important and that then it's it's always better to knowingly create something it, than to accidentally I mean it's the whole question of privilege Yeah. you know did I did, you don't earn it at all it's just something that sort of passes on and if your eyes aren't open to it you perpetuate things that are much worse oh, yeah, totally. than what you're attempting to accomplish Yeah. so going into it with eyes open is so fascinating and refreshing and I and yeah I love that whole thing uh, <laughs> um and uh, well, Folger, the Folger is really interesting 
as well because the docents come in all the time. Like it's it's like Ford's museum. So right, like right. The, the theater space is open at, at all times during business hours to people. Oh, interesting. I don't even, think I knew that. They can even observe. I believe they can observe tech rehearsals as well. Um, huh. I'm not super certain about that, but I believe that at some points the balcony level is open and people can come up because this, there are separate doors, so it's possible right. to enter without being disruptive. Um, but the docents come in all the time and they talk about how this space. I feel really bad for them because they have to say immediately everyone's first question before before that question comes out. They're like, "No, this isn't the globe. It's super small, by the way, compared to the, what the globe actually is. It's not actually an. It's not actually any particular Elizabethan theater. It's representative of a certain type, and it wasn't originally meant to produce theater. <laughs> it was built there as an idea to show people what it would piece. have looked like. Yeah, right. as a museum piece." And it's only later that they're like, well, but that doesn't make any sense. We should definitely have a theater in here. This <laughs> right. is, it is a theater. So you can see the, on the architecture, there's like layers of, well, this was a really silly. If you're going to produce theater in here, like the roof, the inner roof of it, just like surrounding the heavens, is made of this really heavy slate, which is fine for a museum piece, but makes zero sense when you have actors constantly. Right. All, and people just roaming around. Yeah. And so... The history as it goes, and I don't know, and I believe they started doing that in like the 40s and then got really serious about it in the 70s. Hmm. And then Michael Kahn comes in way later. Right. So I don't know the history prior to that, but I know that that's when when they were like the Shakespeare company or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they were the Shakespeare Theater for a little bit. And mm-hmm. so they occupied the space. The space has always belonged to the museum. Right. Which is hugely frustrating, by the way. <laughs> they're a busy museum, and they do very good works with it. They, there, there are times that I can't have access to the stage that I would like. <laughs> but uh, there's actually still a sign on the door from Michael's time as well. He didn't physically sign it or whatever. It says, it says don't slam this door. <laughs> Please be quiet up here. <laughs> it was Perfect. one of the stage managers and the board opposite. So completely hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just no one has thought to take it down. And that what they left, like I said, like ninety five or whatever to move to Landsberg. I forget the exact right. dates, but and then uh but they but the reason they left is clearly because like that the you're only a producing company inside somebody else's building and you don't have there's a lot of times you just don't have access to things that you would like to have as a theater right. company. Like right. Where's the rehearsal space and the living space and all this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. And the, actually, the interns—I uh, believe they're called fellows now—at um, <laughs> Shakespeare live in what used to be artist housing on East Capitol when they were still resident at Folger, mm-hmm. which is all kind. Of, it's just the, the layers of that. Oh yeah, of that story are just fascinating. And everyone is because everyone is still around. Like it's sort of like yeah, completely amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it every time I work there. I'm sure I would, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I won't be working there very much longer because I, uh, just timing doesn't work out. Their season looks really cool, actually. But um, The folder? Yeah. I haven't looked at it They're yet. They're doing, um, it's a big year. I believe it's either a birth or death anniversary. Oh. Um, so they're, they're hosting six shows, three of which they're producing and three of which are, like, traveling things. So the... Women's Voices thing is Text and Beheadings, which is about Queen Elizabeth I. Oh, cool. Four different actresses playing her on a very red set. <laughs> very red. Uh-huh. Uh, the lights are also red. So red. Okay. <laughs> um, there's uh, Reduced Shakespeare Companies in there, and there's... Gosh. I'm blanking on the third. And then they're doing Posner's directing Midsummer Night's Dream, and they're, he's adapting The Merchant of Venice for... DC and they're doing a co-pro of Pericles with Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Yes. yes what? Yes. Folger is co-producing yeah. with Oregon. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's unexpected. They're basically taking their their Pericles from Oregon and putting it in Folger, which is huh. hard to do because the theaters are not the same size. No. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. This, so the season is super exciting. I might actually talk about the tomorrow. I'm, my my podcast number two interview is with uh, Celia Renton. So oh, cool. She just got back, and uh, well, I, I'm hoping to be able to talk to her about Pericles. <laughs> yeah, which would be cool. And um, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I think that is the end of that tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's, 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 it's great radio when your brain just comes to a screeching halt, but you That's still okay. have to produce. That's okay. You're loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, My brain does that most days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you wanted to... Because we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I told some weird stories. Yeah. And I, I think we've covered half <laughs> of your Made some bad jokes. <laughs> uh, Twitter. Uh, that's where puns go to live and die. So right. It's, it's totally there. Um, or if you have anything to plug coming up. If, because we're, we're around an hour now. So like. Um, oh, shoot. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, plugs coming up. The welders are doing a women's thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me be a little more articulate okay, about yeah. that. <laughs> um, Greg Henry from the Kennedy Center invited us to do, I think we're calling it Women of the Welders or Women of Welders 2.0, or I don't know if we have a title for it yet, but it's at the Millennium Stage. Oh, cool. On September 28th. Mm, okay. And I think it's somehow the Kennedy Center's like entry into the Women's Voices Festival or... There's oh. some connection. Right. I don't really understand how all of that is functioning. I just know that I'm supposed to produce something at, at on the Millennium Stage. Um, <laughs> so we haven't super determined what exactly we're doing yet because this is kind of how we function. <laughs> um, but there will be something from the women of Welders 2.0 on the Millennium Stage at 6 p.m. on September 28th. Okay. Um, it's either going to be like a selection of some different things that we've already written or mm -hmm. already produced and we're going to bring back. Or the other thing that may be more exciting if we can get our acts together by September 28th is we were talking about putting our creative process on stage. Oh. So like getting all, what is it, five of, five of us that are women together and trying to create something in the space of that one hour on the millennium stage and like having an audience to the creative process and likely we would invite the audience to be part of it right, as well yeah. and not just like spectators Obviously, yeah. um but that will involve some significant pre-planning theoretically and you know like goals wise what are we right. hoping to get yeah, out of it absolutely. um so if we can get all of that together that may happen for the 28th that sounds really cool yeah yeah um and i think it would probably be a good introduction to who we are and like what our whole shtick is going to be yeah, about right, for the next totally. few years well and that's part of the part of the importance of the welders is, is that process is we're, we're we're transparency is different i say we that make no sense at all <laughs> I'm not part of that project. Uh, you I, can be. This is the whole thing. Like true. we're, I mean, truly, I think one of our questions is going to be like, who, who are we considering welders? What does it mean? Mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. You will be invited to come to all of our things, right? And to to come to all of the parties that we throw because I think we're interested in exploding the possibilities of what it means to be a welder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. By all means, we. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, yeah. Uh, it, it, but it, I, I, I agree. It would be a great introduction because it would be of a piece with with your. It's a rhetorical act whose form and content are married. If, yeah. If I'm gonna get super See? very theory about it, <laughs> which I enjoy doing. <laughs> yep. So this is really awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This is great. <laughs>